welcome back to yet another Behind the Lens. Okay, why can't I hear anything, Pam? <laughs> We're having sound issues here right now. Um, but we'll work on that and see what the problem is. But welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online in the U.S. and abroad 24-7. But every Monday, I am right here on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, where we go behind the lens and below the line in film, television, music. And today, I am beyond excited that we have an incredible, incredible writer, director, and a friend joining us. Dion Taylor will be with us at the quarter hour mark. I'm very, very excited to have Dion with us today. Um, we're going to talk about his new film, Traffic. It opened last week. This week, it is still number 10 at the box office. And the fact that we even have 10 films on the box office countdown this week, given the opening of Avengers Infinity War, um, it shows that people did go see something beside Avengers. Not too many people went and saw anything but Avengers uh, since a new global record was just set. $630 million opening weekend. Uh, domestically shattered all expectations. Just incredible, incredible box office. The feedback is great. Again, people, please, no spoilers. I know how desperately so many of you, and there are so many press that have written actual reviews that are nothing but spoilers. Um, really unconscionable. And it, it should not be happening. Give everyone a chance to see the film, please. Because there are so many surprises in this film that will have you doing collective gasps within the theater, that will bring tears, that will have heartbreak, that will have you elated. Um, and of course, we have Rocket and Groot, so that's always a good thing. Uh, but an incredible, incredible film. The Russo brothers have done it again. Uh, I already want to see part two of Infinity War, which is not coming out until next April. Uh, I want it now. I think you will too, if you haven't seen it. But uh, go see it. Wait till the crowds die, die down. Go see it. Now that TCM Film Festival is gone in Hollywood, uh, those of you that want to see it in IMAX, on the big screen, you can see it at the Chinese now uh, because of TCM. We did not, you weren't able to this weekend. Uh, but those of you that were in Hollywood for TCM Film Festival, you were treated to some really amazing, amazing films and another great. Uh, number nine was Divine as uh, General TCM General Manager Je Jennifer Dorian had to say. Um, just an amazing festival. They just keep getting better and better. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how programmer Charlie Tabish and his team do it, but they did it. Um, some wonderful finds, some wonderful gets. Uh, for those of you that want to hear what a lot of the attendees, the luminaries had to say, go to BehindTheLensOnline.net and check out 18 red carpet interviews that I did opening night. Um, the likes of four-time Academy Award winner Ben Burt, sound designer, special uh, sound effects, uh, two-time Academy Award winner, 
costume designer Mark Bridges. He just won uh, for Phantom Thread, as a matter of fact, and previously for The Artist a number of years ago. Director Bill Morrison. Uh, And then legends like Diane Baker, Ruta Lee, uh, Sarah Karloff, Boris Karloff's daughter, uh, Suzanne Lloyd, Harold Lloyd's granddaughter. These women do so much to perpetuate the legacies of their loved ones. And it is amazing what they do um, and the insight that they have. And especially Suzanne Lloyd, what she does is outstanding all year long with various programs celebrating the work of Harold Lloyd. Um, Keith Carradine, uh, Dana Delaney, Rosanna Arquette, just absolutely amazing. And Mel Brooks. So uh, it was it was a very exciting red carpet. Um, check out some of the interviews. And, of course, you know, when you're looking for classic film, look to TCM. You can now stream online with Filmstruck, which is now partnered with TCM. So it's, it's amazing. Uh, but for our amazing show today, before Dion calls us at the quarter hour mark, we're going to take a listen to writer-director Greg Caruso. He has, Greg has a new film out called Flock of Four. Uh, I, it is an exquisite film. Uh, many of our regular listeners will remember that Greg actually joined the show he was on the show a couple of years ago for his film, making the, the documentary, Making the American Man. Um, Flock of Four is as far from documentary as you can get. Although the research and history that you will hear it and see in the film is amazing. The film is set in 1959 in South Central L.A., which was considered at the time the West Coast Harlem. Uh, and this is really, it's a story of jazz. And four white boys, one of whom is obsessed with jazz, and they go into South Central seeking a legend, uh, a legendary jazz performer who is played by Reggie Cathay in what was his, would become his final film appearance. So I had a chance to talk to Greg a couple weeks ago, and I just want you to hear, get a, a little taste, hear a little bit of what he had to say about the making of this film, where this idea came from. You know, Greg is a great lover of jazz. He truly is, and he knows the genre so well. So for him to do a narrative film like this with beautiful, beautiful cinematography, courtesy of Gus Bendinelli, um, a cast of relative unknowns, but the music speaks for itself. The music permeates the entire film. It is a subtle undercurrent to everything. I want a soundtrack. Um, But right now, take a listen to what Greg had to say about the idea for this film and some of of his considerations in putting the film together. Flock of Four. Where did... I know you're a jazz lover, but where did the idea for telling this story... You know, uh, music aficionados know that you know, South Central L.A. really was the West Coast Harlem before Hollywood commandeered everything. Um, So I'm curious, you know, what led you to tell this story and to set it really in 1959, which was the the big cusp on where jazz was kind of fading out? Exactly. Yeah, I, um, 
I took a course at USC uh, about the history of jazz, and it only touched on South Central. So I wanted to do my own research, um, became infatuated with the history and the music and the culture down there. And I wished that I could have been there in the heyday. Um, so I guess I related it to myself uh, growing up in a different part of LA and, and wanting to to go back to that time, to go to South Central in the, in the heyday. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to set it at a time where this character, Joey, has all these, um, he has all these ideas of what it's gonna be like, how glamorous and amazing it's gonna be. And when he gets there, it's, um, it's kind of, it's on the out. And um, it's different than what it used to be and what he imagined it to be. Mm-hmm. And we, to your point, we set it in 59 because it was, it was the cusp. Um, you know, R&B um, was becoming more popular, which took a lot of jazz musicians over to that genre. And then um, rock and roll was, was also becoming popular. And the Beatles were around the corner um, with the British invasion coming in 61 mm-hmm. um, and rock and roll. Uh, so I wanted to, to set it in a time when you have this, uh, this young kid who maybe, um, maybe should or easily could be a, uh, a rock and roll fan, but he's a nostalgic kid who loves jazz and um, is, is dealing with the juxtaposition of this amazing um, community where jazz really came alive, um, but he kind of just missed it. You know, and what you do so well with the story, Greg, is you give us the setup with his father's love of, of music and his father's love of jazz, which he has inherited. The older brother, right. Sam, he isn't into jazz at all. You know, in 1950, when he gets old, it, he's going to be a true Elvis rock and roller exactly. as, as he hits his teens. But then we have Joey caught betwixt and between. But you show us these different eras. You show us the love and the appreciation that Joey's dad had for jazz. And it's those memories that he feeds on. And then we've got Joey's, you know, the dreamlike state. Like every little kid, you remember vividly what your parent tells you. So you just glamorize it even that much more. And then you also give us Sam's world with the diner, which uh, the the diner scene is absolutely killer with your color, your turquoise, your reds. Just um, the the whole thing in those regard with your production design is great. But the fact that you celebrate these three very distinct timeline points of the story is it is the cohesive thread that brings it all together. I appreciate it. Yeah, we, we worked hard on getting that right um, and, and making it real and, and true. Well, you you truly succeeded. You know, Thank you. What, i got to ask you, I have to get you to talk about your production design, your color, be, and the juxtaposition that you give us in South Central because we see the boarded up places. You get an idea of what the community used to be and how vibrant it was. But then we open the door to the tritone, which is the one bit of glamour that's left. And, you know, it's a beautiful supper club. And 
You've got all the women in very fashionable, you know, bro satin and brocade dresses of the era with the really cool-looking jewelry. The men are all in suits. You then counter that with also the vibrancy and life that's in the cage, the, the cage bird. Right. So how did you go about designing these very specific looks so that they are so period perfect so then Gus could come in and light these things. I'm telling you, you've got a look on this film that is a $150 million budget. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, our crew was great. Our production designer, Erin McGill, um, she had just come off of Mad Men. Um, mm -hmm. And she's, she's incredible. Our uh, costume designer, Tiffany White Stanton, um, also came from Mad Men and they had worked together. So there was a shorthand um, and a attention to detail that was incredible um and then Gus coming in and lighting it the way he did we had uh, worked together throughout college and after college so we also had a shorthand um and everyone was on the same page we really wanted to nail down what we were going for before we got there and and then to your point about the the difference between the tritone and the cage bird the, the tritone um, is that, that last jewel, mm -hmm. uh, that last um, picture into the past of what it used to be hanging on a thread. And then we wanted to um, we wanted to compare that with the cage bird that's more of a local scene that's playing, I guess, more, more blues um, into R&B. And more of an off the beat path place. But you know what I real what I truly appreciate are in those two venues, the Tritone and the Cage Bird. We have with the Tritone, we even have the neon marquee outside. It real this is where we have an explosion of color and life. And even in the Cage Bird, we've got the the texture. It's not just like Joey and Sam's family home growing up that had the dark woods and the golden umber tones you really give with the with the filter of the cigarette smoke and the way you use lighting with the smoke you give us a lot of texture and life so in those places we have life as opposed to the 50s diner that it's brightly lit it's it, everything is like monotone in that world it's bright it's can it's cotton candy colored and you know what went into picking, you know, what did you and Gus talk about to come up with those two very defining looks for life in this film? We, we studied a lot of Technicolor films, you know, from the 60s, uh, even 50s. And then we also studied films like The Godfather, The Exteriors, mm -hmm. um, specifically for South Central, Underexposed, um neon but but not in the same way as you said that the diner was lit and how um the palette of the diner was brighter it was something that i had to push myself on to really um to really separate the two because i uh, i typically go for more dim wit mm -hmm. um earth tones like we see maybe in the in the cage word or at the beginning of the film in the home but it was definitely an emphasis that we wanted to make we wanted the audience to really feel the shift, um, whether it's it's the music, the color palette, the lighting. We wanted we wanted to really take the audience on that journey. 
from the diner to South Central. Okay. Oh, there. We have sound. We have sound. Yay. All right. So that's just a little bit of, of Greg Caruso talking about Flock of Four. Um, it is out there. It's more of an art house film, and I believe it's already on the digital platforms. I can't recommend it highly enough. It is a beautiful, beautiful film, and as I said, the soundtrack is amazing. But something else that is absolutely beyond beautiful beyond is the beyond beautiful writer, director, and my friend, Dion Taylor. Hello, Dion. I am so thrilled to have you on the show live. This is very exciting. Yes. How are you? I'm fine. I'm thrilled to be talking to you. I'm even more thrilled that traffic, it opened at number nine last week. This week, it's holding on to the number 10 spot. Um, Even though 90% of the world went to see Avengers Infinity War, People still went to see traffic. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, not to mention we're a thousand to two thousand screens less than every movie on the list. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. I mean, it's. I mean, you had a fifty-eight percent drop from last week, but that's not that bad, uh, especially considering with what no. came out. You're still doing a higher per screen average than I think Super Troopers two and a few other films that are in the top ten. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I, I'm you know, I'm just excited that the movie is in the theater and it's working and people love it and and that's all we can ask for, Debbie. Well, and it's funny because I was I was doing the TCM Film Festival, Classic Film Festival this weekend, and on the red carpet Thursday night, I was talking to Eddie Muller, who's he's up in your neck of the woods, um, and Eddie is the quote unquote king of noir. And you and I have talked about this with Traffic because midpoint of the film, it shifts into noir. And that's something Eddie and I actually talked about and specifically brought up Traffic on the TCM Classic Film Festival red carpet Thursday night. Because you as a younger wow. filmmaker, you know, you are embracing the classic styling of noir with Traffic. And I think that that's something that's so important um, because you truly do look at where film has come from, what it, what you can do with it to tell your story, and you incorporate that. And, you know, that speaks volumes about you, Dion, as a filmmaker, that you, want, you know what you want to say, but you also want to investigate the best way to say it. No, that, that's exactly right. Um, I think you know when 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 you when you set up to do movies and films uh, as an independent artist, you, you're not guaranteed a chance to do it over and over again. <laughs> so when you when you risk it, you have to risk and, and take a take a chance on something you believe in. And um, all I know and all I fell in love with growing as a filmmaker was. You know the old school noir films. You know the way that the way that it was done, right? Like I just love the process, and I think in a world right now where so much CGI and special effects and all these other things that are going on, I just think it's a really cool breath of fresh air to go to a movie and see something authentic and in the place that me and you are talking about. 
Oh, and I and you know how much I love the tonal shift within traffic and what you and your amazing cinematographer Dante Spinotti um it is still miraculous that you got Dante as your cinematographer. But when you create yes. this whole shooting at night in a forest that is truly a forest, using headlights as your backlighting and creating silhouette, it it takes your breath away. And given your plot points with that tonal shift, your heart stops as you're waiting to see what's happening. I mean, just so I can't I cannot stress this enough that that tonal shift when you shift into that into the second half of the film that is so exquisitely done powerfully done and it really belies the number of films that you have done thus far Dion it truly does that is the hallmark of a very experienced veteran filmmaker. Well, I thank you so much for that. I mean, how do I, how do I, what do I say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm over here blessing. You got my eyes, my eyes are blessing. Oh, well, you know, to fill the, uh, the no, I, you know what? I think it's the, it's the genius though. It's the, it's, um, you know, I think it's a it's a situation where, as a filmmaker, um, I mean, you obviously interview so many incredible people on this show, and uh, for me, just you know, being a self taught filmmaker and you know, trying to figure out where I fit and and what stories I would like to tell, um, it's an interesting world when you when you place yourself in a world around true professionals like Dante, you know, Spinotti to, you know, be your cinematographer. And uh, like I told you before, what's interesting is I think as a filmmaker, you're always, it's, it's sort of like sports. You're always kind of doubting yourself a little bit when you start a movie and uh, when you're on a new team, right? And, and this project was interesting because here I am trying to, figure out like damn Dion, are you are you good enough to work with this man and um, do you have it like are you prepared because this is not this is not you know amateur hour this is not I'm gonna guess at being a director this is Dante as your cinematographer who has shot Heat who has shot LA Confidential who has shot The Insider who has shot Last Mohicans this is Michael Mann's guy right mm-hmm. and uh, all I could do is 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 pray we get all set, and I think it was day three. I was like, "Dude, you got this." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was, it was, it was a moment in time where you know you almost you don't pat yourself on the back. But when we talk lenses, or we talk lights, or we talk where I want to be with my with my actors, and to see him go light up and go, "Okay, this this kid knows what he's talking about." Um, I just think it's an interesting time for me as a filmmaker. And I think the results you get are what you've seen in traffic. Um, it's a new style, but at the same time, it's an old school style, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the world that I want to be in. Um, I love what he was able to do with lighting. And um, a lot of a lot of younger filmmakers, I don't think, truly understand the ability to play with people's emotions with light. Mm-hmm. Um and it's something that I learned in this movie. 
you know, we studied this before we shot the movie, and we understood that the lenses would get tighter, the framing would get tighter, the tension would get tighter the moment that this young girl knocks on the door at this house in the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to see us pull it off and watch the film with an audience, you just go, oh, man, damn, look at this. Right? People are just like, you know, they're holding on. And um, it's great, man. I'm, I'm so excited. You know, had the movie not made one dollar, I probably would have still been excited based on the fact that you do these movies independently and you do it for the art, not for money. Mm-hmm. And uh, I learned that a long time ago. You know, you try to go out here and make some commercial movie that everyone wants to see and it doesn't work. And then you sit up there looking like, you know, a fool because you've done, you've, you haven't done something that you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So what I learned a while ago was to do your own thing. Make, make your art. Make the film you want to make. And if you do that, chances are it will find an audience from the people that you made it for. Mm-hmm. And uh, traffic represents that. Oh, it, absolutely. You know, and it's funny because, as you know, and I, I have made no bones about it, I have not, not traditionally been a big fan of your leading lady, uh, Paula Patton, in a lot of the film choices, right. that she, performance choices she's made. I loved her in Swing Vote. Here, this is the best performance of her career, hands down, uh, in Traffic. But it was interesting because Swing Vote has been showing on stars over the weekend. And in the middle of the night, I caught it again and watched it. And her character in there, in many respects, is very similar to her character in Traffic. In Swing Vote, she played mm. an investigative re- television reporter. And right. just as she plays a newspaper reporter in Traffic. And in Swing Vote, she was always dancing around the story. She wasn't getting to the heart of the story. Again, very similar to what her character uh, is, Bria is accused of doing um, by her boss, William Fitchner, in traffic, dancing around the story and not getting to the heart of it. But to take that G-rated edge that she had in Swing Vote and dedication and, and connectivity and now amp it up a thousand percent and add the thriller and the action aspect to it. I mean, it's, this is the Paula Patton I wanted to see go on a journey over all these years to get to the point she is now from that performance in swing vote to her performance now and to see the similarities, but to see that exponential growth. And that comes from a good director. That a lot of that comes from you as a director, Dion, to bring that out in her. Well, yeah, no, I, I mean, I mean, you're 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 100 right, and um, you know, I'm I'm not a, I don't like taking a lot of credit for anything. You know me, uh, but but it is a it is a fight uh, when you're on set. It's a fight. It's a fight to. It's a fight to tell your talent what you're trying to get to and how you want to get there. Um, And then it's a process of, I think, motivation versus, you know, arguing. Mm -hmm. So what was great about Paula in this movie was, you know, she, she was not scared to take a chance uh, after a few days on set. Like I just told her, look, lose yourself in the road, jump out the car, dive on the ground, scream as big as you want to be. You know, if, 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 if we don't, if we don't like it, we do it again. 
Mm-hmm. But but I think I might have been the first person to unharness that with her. Mm-hmm. I might have been the first person to be like, you know, to tell her, I don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do it. Like, let's see. And I think that's also a testament to, it, you know, to independent film. And, you know, me being in the process, I've been doing this for a long time by myself. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you have no one looking over your shoulder to say, hey, what's Paula doing? Why is she doing it that way? You know, it's kind of like, get, get, get away from us, get away from me. Let us make our movies, man. And, and, and then we'll figure out what, what, when she finds the rhythm, that's what we'll go with on the picture. But, you know, we were not scared. No one was scared on set. Like, Paula wasn't scared. She was fearless. Omar Epps was not scared. Laz wasn't scared. And what happened was the, move, the, 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 the set became almost like a workshop where we were coming daily and trying to we were playing with different things, different emotions. You know, I would throw stuff at them that they didn't know we were going to do that day. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, try this. And it was great, man, to see everybody just kind of find themselves in that movie. And it's interesting because I always, I always kid, I would kid a lot. But, you know, we've seen the reviews and, and like, you know, LA Times is fantastic. You were fantastic. It was so many incredible reviews. And then you get people that go, Oh, well, this is silly. This is nonsense. How could you make a thriller? And, you know, you put traffic in as the backdrop. And, and I'm reading this stuff and I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, these are the same people that wrote Taken was a great movie, mm-hmm. right? Where there was a there was a superhero secret service agent man that went and flew across the country and beat up 50, 50 people, right? But I told Omar Palmer when we made the movie, I said, don't worry about none of that, man. Make it for the people. And, and true enough, if you go look right now, the movie's 91% on Google, 94% on Facebook. You know what I mean? It's, it's, that's why it's worth it. It's because it's grounded in reality and their performances were incredible, man. I think you're right, Paula. This is our best performance. I was, I challenged her because I thought Deja Vu was one of the best movies I had seen her in. Um, and I told her, I said, we need that Paula Patton back. Yes. We want, we want that one. You know what I mean? That one that does. Not only is she beautiful and sexy, and not only does she steal the screen, but she's believable, and, and, she, and, she, and her moments are great. And I think in traffic, she found some incredible moments, man. Like, I mean, just with her face. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Not even, not even words. Like, you know, when she gets put into the back of the truck, you know what I mean? When she's being taken, and, and, and the moment in the cave, and... She just has some incredible moments, man. Where I said, "Man, this girl, she's she's a beast." Well, you know, and of course, the fact that you you're a whole ensemble. I mean, you have this core ensemble of Paula, of Omar Epps, of of uh, uh, huh, Rosalind Sanchez, and Laz Alonzo. You have this core, and each one is feeding off the other. And I got to tell you, anybody mm-hmm. that gets put in a film opposite. Rosalind Sanchez, you and it calls for any kind of action. You better up your game because that woman is fearless. She survived shooting yep. Act of Valor for Scotty Waugh and Mouse McCoy, and that was brutal. Yep. And yep. so yep. when when all you need is one person doing something, and it just elevates everybody. Yeah, and you know. That's right. Everybody was absolutely fearless here. And, you know, you mentioned the woman who knocks at the door. Um, that is the wonderful Dawn 
Oliveri, and Dawn was in Supremacy. And people can also see her in Den of Thieves, Gerard Butler's movie that was just in theaters and is now available on VOD. And but you you bring in you get the you get the big you get the hard hitting players, Dion. I don't know how you do it, but you do it. And it shows on the screen. It really does. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. How much of your experience as a basketball player, because I don't know how many people realize you used to play basketball. Um, How much of the experience of being on a team, teamwork, uh, the whole idea of, yeah, there's collaboration, yes, there's teamwork, but there there is one leader, you know, and in the case of filmmaking, that's you. How does that translate for you? taking the disciplines of the one of, of sports and moving that into filmmaking? Yeah, I mean, I think that's everything that I do. Um, it's, it's my DNA. You know, I think what you learn from sports, which is what I bring to film, and, and I've, I've been told a bunch of times now in my career, like, man, gee, I've never made a movie like this. Um, on a, on a team, everyone is responsible for one thing, and that's to win the game. Mm-hmm. And we're responsible for if you if you're making your shots, guess what? I'm rebounding and I'm playing defense. If if you know if if the ball rolls on the ground, I'm going to dive and get it. The goal is for the team to win, right? And for everyone to be selfless. And that's a big. I mean, if you if you play professional sports and you play sports at the high level, that's what the game is about. It's not about you. And ultimately what happens is if I get into an argument with you in practice or if I get into a fight with you in practice, guess what? When the lights come on and it's game time, the minute that someone pushes you, I'm going to be right over there fighting for you. And I bring that to film. I I bring everybody in. It doesn't matter what your ego is, how you feel. I I teach this concept to people because we all need each other. Everybody has to be great. You can't just be great in the movie and everybody else sucks, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So what I try my hardest to do is not be the director that's a star. I try to be the guy in the back that's coaching my, my talent. I try to coach us to a win, right? I try to tell us what we're doing wrong, what we're not doing wrong. If you're off in the scene, I tell you, like, yo, you're off on this one. Maybe you're not sticking it here. Let's try it this way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And sometimes, which is really interesting, I, I use a lot, which is if something's not vibing right that's on the script, sometimes I'll just, you know, I'll take a moment to say, look, how about we don't say this at all? We just play this with, with the expressions off of your counsels or whoever you're acting with. Right? We find moments. We, we figure it out. And I think that allows everyone to be very confident when they're on set. It allows people to be talkative. It allows people to explore different things. You know, it allows you to challenge yourself. You know what I mean? Because now you're in an environment where today you might be getting down, and then tomorrow, you know, somebody else is getting down more than you, so you take the challenge, like, all right, let's do it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or it's not that challenge. Or it's a situation where if you're doing good today, I'm not going to compete with you. I'm going to let you have a road today. Right? And that's what happens a lot of times in acting. I've seen it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of ego is involved. So I got to get all my words out. You got you got your stuff out. Let me get my stuff out. 
sometimes you sometimes you're dope on screen when you don't say all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, we approach it that way, man. It's selfless. It's selfless. Selfless filmmaking. It's about what we're trying to bring. It's not about who has the most words. It's not about who's the star. When we made traffic, everyone knew Paul Patton was the star. Right? Mm-hmm. knew, Laz knew, Omar Epps knew. We all come and we all fight. We play our role. We play this extremely well. You know, but we know if it's, if it's, a, if it's a head and tail situation, we're like, okay, we got to go with somebody. It's part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Right? And, 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 and I think once everyone understands that, everyone could be great. And in traffic, I think you've seen everybody to me without a 10. And that's fantastic. Well, you know, another 10 that you really have on the film is Laz Alonzo. This is the first time Laz has really been allowed to step up his own game and step out of being a stereotyped, you know, second banana, so quote unquote. Um, That's right. He's not, he's, you know, he really has a, his performance is powerhouse. Uh, in here as the character yes. of Darren. He just, he is off the wall, and it's something we've never seen from him. That's something that you do so well, Dion, and you've done it. You did it with Supremacy. You did it with Meet the Blacks. You're doing it here with Traffic. And I, for one, can't wait to see the film you have coming up with Dennis Quaid. Um but you, oh man, I can't wait for yeah, you to see it. Uh, yeah, hello. Somebody needs to, you know, <laughs> get get me in to see it. Uh, but you know, what you do is you give your cast, you give everybody a chance to do something that we haven't seen them do before, and I really think that also allows they feel. I think for actors, feel more invested. When they really get to stretch and do something that they're not used to doing. I know that is what excited. That's why Laws won. He told me point blank. That's why when he saw the script and he saw what he would get to do as Darren, he knew what he could bring to the table for that. And that's why he took the role. That's no, that's right. Yeah, I mean, look, that's right. If you have an opportunity... To, to, to stretch out as an actor with the director, you take it. That's why you're an actor, right? And mm-hmm. I think everyone went against their typecast in this film. We had not seen Rosalind like this. Uh, Active Valor was great. We had never seen her as like more so the kept woman. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She, she was able to find an arc in the, in the movie where she's like, you know, she, she represented, you know, a large majority of women that are kept women that at some point say, you know what, I'm done with this. Yep. Right? You see Laz, who was more of the, more of the man's man, the guy with the money, the all, and it looks like everything is together with him, but really he's not, he's a piece of, you know, he's a piece of crap. Yep. Right? And, and then you see Omar, which I thought was fantastic, where he just plays a regular guy in this climate, which is very hard to do, especially for African-American people, right? Like, we're enamored with Instagram and, and everybody's like trying to be something, you know, bigger than what, you know, bigger than life. And I said, man, like it's, it's a, it's a majority of people that are out here that are not like that. It's a majority of people that are out here that are just regular people, like trying to figure life out. And he was that guy. 
right? Mm-hmm. Didn't have, didn't have you know, the jewelry and the houses. And as a matter of fact, he was a mechanic. He built a car for his girlfriend, you know? And um, then you have Paula who brings up the back, who's like a struggling journalist, who's having her issues, her problems. And she's blinded by trying to be the best journalist, but yet she hasn't found that one story that will take her to the next level. Mm-hmm. And then you have flawed characters. And once you have flawed characters, I think you, if you flaw them right, you speak to the masses because everyone can sit in the theater and be like, damn, that's me. Or, I, I, damn, I've done that before. You know what I mean? Or, oh, man, I've been there. And, and once you can kind of do that in a movie, I think that's what's incredible. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that's where you get, you know, we talked a while about uh, Barry Jenkins and Moonlight. Um, I mean, even like the I, Tanya movie. Right, I think what happens typically we we lean on critical acclaim films to deliver us flawed characters and commercial movies. We just we just go for the excitement and the popcorn and don't really care. Mm-hmm. But now what's starting to happen is the flawed world, the flawed the the the, 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 the film representing people that are sitting in the theater, the i.e. Get Out i.e. a quiet place, right? These yep. are moments where you watch a movie, you go, damn, I feel it. Like, I'm feeling it in my core. And that's something we were fighting for in traffic. Like, I wanted the characters to be whole. I wanted them to be real. I didn't, we didn't care if, you know, you know, uh, uh, some critic that watches 50 movies a, a, a week goes, why well, get this? This is silly. Like, no, guess what? It's, it's it's a it's five million people out there going, damn, that's me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and that's what you make them for, right? And I think that's the level of acting that I'm playing and hoping that I can keep getting out of you know, all of the people that I have a chance to work with. And uh, you mentioned Dennis Quay a moment ago. I am uh, I'm going to go on record to tell you, I think this is going to be the best performance you've ever seen Dennis Quay have. Wow. He's he is, he is mind-boggling in this show. He is, he is, he's going to blow you away. He's that good. Wow. He's that good. Yes. Well, you know, and I don't, I don't think I told you, but, you know, I just sat down with Dennis uh, a few weeks ago for I Can Only Imagine, uh, the film he's got yep. out right now. And... I mean, I adore Dennis. I have followed Dennis his entire entire career. Um, I, I know one of my favorite films of his was Frequency with Jim Caviezel. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, he's great. But, you know, he just invests so much into performances. So knowing what you invest as a director and knowing Dennis's ethic... I am dying to see this film. I cannot wait to see yeah. to see what what yeah, you and Dennis have done. It's a doozy. It's a doozy, man. And this is it is scary and it's fun. And it, this will be my commercial. <laughs> this is the one. Oh God! See, and now, now you you know you've tempted me here, and now I have I can't see it yet. Some, no, you're going to see it. Somebody, I'm going to actually have, I'm gonna get you to see it this week. Okay. You I, have to. I have time. You know, you know, you're my good luck charm. 
you know I will see anything that you do anywhere in any shape, uh, beginning, middle, end, you know, because I just have so much faith in you as a filmmaker, Dion, and what you do and your dedication and your passion to the craft. That is something that I, I love and respect beyond belief you because you don't approach this as a job you approach this as your life's work and that is no that's right that's what makes the difference and that's what comes across on the screen you know something we haven't talked about with this film and we didn't talk about the other week your sound design you know sound design so often is overlooked is so is overlooked in a film by directors but sound yes. is critical. It's something William H. Macy and I talked about uh, with his new film, Crystal. He was amazed at everything that could be done with sound. And yes. so, so I'm curious, because of the very nature of traffic, because we want moments of silence, because you have very key needle drop songs inserted and because of the nature of the theme, the dark notes of sex trafficking on the whole, what was your game plan? What were your thoughts on the kind of sound design that you wanted with this film? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we the sound design was done by Greg King um, and uh, Gregory King, and, and those guys were absolutely amazing, and the score was done by Jeff Zanelli. Um, you know, Jeff is one of the guys that parts of the Caribbean and uh, mm-hmm. hosted, you know, everything else. But, yeah, the sound was important in the movie because, what has, you know, I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a drone guy. So if you watch any of the things that I've done, I really like, like the dark rumbling. I, I like undertones. I like things that go, you know, make you, make your, your body shake a little bit when it gets scary. And, um, we were able to find some beautiful moments in the beginning and the same exact thing that we did with Dante, which was begin to play around with the light and squish or, you know, squish, squish the way you see the movie and make you feel the tension with the lighting is the same exact thing we, we aim to do with the, uh, with the sound design is for it to get a more gothic and more scarier and more darker and more deeper bass and, you know, for the for the highs to go away and to make it really rumble, and um, that's something that we aim to do. And, and, and Greg was—I mean, he was. I, I mean, look—if you've seen the movie in the theater, it does, you will you will feel it. Yes. You know, all the way to the point where when you when you get a moment to understand where you are, and then we drop Nina Simone, Strange Fruit. Um, you know, these are moments that that you know we built for the audience to experience the journey. Mm-hmm. And um, I agree with you 100%. Like, 50% of that, you know, is what the sound does, what the score does. You know, um, I was a huge fan of uh, the score to Split, um, the Bluehouse movie with, um, um, what's the director? Uh, uh, M. Night Shyamalan made last year, Split. Mm-hmm. Um I just loved what what the music did in there. It was just... I just love that. And I'm mm-hmm. like, ooh, I like that. Because I also, you know, and it kind of reminds me, remember Gladiator? 
Yes. It, it, it kind of reminded me of that. It's like something like to you physically, you go, ooh, this is something just tough. And um, we kind of mimicked, a, 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 like I love that sound. I wanted to mimic something similar to that. And, and, and we were able to nail our own, you know, what I like to call disruption, where everything's not safe. And, you know, the other thing that we did a lot with the sound designs, we pulled music out at times. So there was a moment where Luke Goss, you know, he does, you know, he pulls the trigger and he shoots the girl. And what I did, I took the sound completely out. Yep. I wanted to hear the audience breathe. And then I start the sound back up with her taking, with Paula going, <sighs> she exhales. Yep. And I said, oh, this is dope. Right? Because now what happens to sound a lot is if, if you're a moviegoer, you, you know when the score comes on, oh, something, something bad's about to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? But, but if you start playing with the idea that, no, I'm going to pull the score out, I'm going to let the moments live on their own just through cinema. Mm-hmm. Now you're talking. And one of the best movies, one of the best examples of this, what I'm talking about, was a movie called The Strangers. Uh, a couple of nights, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, uh, a horror movie, yep. which was incredibly, it, it, it was it was so well done. And what they did was they scared the hell out of you. There was no sound. Like It would be moments where someone would just appear in the back with no score, and you would jump out your damn seat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember going, oh, my God, I got to do this. Well, you know, you know, and they just did uh, the the reboot quote uh, slash sequel to the strangers, the strangers pray at night. That just came out a couple months ago. <gasps> oh my God! Johannes Roberts directs it. Bail my my dear dear friend Bailey Madison stars in it. It is incredible. You will jump out of your seat. You have to see it. If you love the originals, The Strangers, you have to see this one. Okay. Okay. I'm going to see it. That's it. I'm actually... It might be... Is it on Apple TV yet? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I know it's still playing in theaters in various parts of the country. Um, It may be on digital or VOD yet. I'm not sure. But put definitely put that on what they did there with sound and cinematography also. Amazing. So you definitely right. you right. definitely need to see it. But you know, another no, look, I'm gonna I'm, I'm I'm gonna get it and I'm gonna watch it just because you told me that I was a huge the reason that I didn't see the first one was simply because I mean the second one was simply because I loved the first one so much. So, so, now, so I didn't want to ruin my experience, but now that you just told me that, I'm going to see it. No, and you know, if if I thought it sucked, I would tell you that. Yes, yes. I, I, I would. I every filmmaker that I know over the past thirty some years, they all know. If I think if I if I think something sucks, I will tell you that <laughs> it does. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, but, you know, mentioning, you know, playing with the sound and on, you mentioned Nina Simone's Strange Fruit. Um, one, of, one of the killer moments of the film, of Traffic, is where you go into slow motion with Missy Pyle. Again, cast against type for what we normally see her in. Um, yes. But you, you take the cinematography, you put it into slow motion, and then you've got Strange Fruit playing against this slow motion saunter of Missy Pyle through the halls of the sheriff's department. 
Um, and it yes. just sets up this incredible juxtaposition between what yes. the song is saying and Missy Pyle in her under color of law and things she's doing as the sheriff. It is one of the most powerful moments of the film. And that's done through sound and through your cinematography. And that is that one scene there. That is a perfect marriage, and it's a scene that you should include in any reel that you ever do. Because it's that, (laughs) the disciplines that you incorporate there are amazing. Man, thank you so much. Yeah, that's, you know, if you've seen any of the films that I shoot, um, I have one, I have one go-to move. (laughs) I have one go-to move that I love, and I try to movie because it just speaks to me which is you know this very tight uh high speed shot of whatever my character is walking mm-hmm. um supremacy it was joe anderson after yep. he kills a police officer he has this incredible slow motion walk through the you know back to his car yep um i've used it everything and everything i've done you but, even yeah, used it moment, you used it in meet the blacks too uh, I use it to meet the black too. Yeah. The whole family coming out of the garage, yeah. Yeah, I just think it's a good moment where I mean that in this movie, traffic. It, it's two different people in two different worlds, and they're both confused. Yep. And and I just thought, wow, this is crazy. Like this lady has done this type of evil act. Here's a girl being pulled and seeing a, a world of you know termination, where mm-hmm. she's going to ultimately either be killed or whatever traffic. And here's another lady, like, journeying back to her regular life. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that song was so powerful. Like I told you, like, when you use, as an African-American man, an African-American person, strange fruit is something that we own, right? Like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a song that you have to be very, very, very selective if you use it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can't just be thrown out in something, right? right? And I just thought this was an interesting moment because trafficking is human slavery today. Yep. It is. When you start talking about five and six and seven million, you know, people, children, you know, women enslaved in basements of homes in neighborhoods domestically, mm-hmm. right? Chained up, tortured, killed, like. It was a great time to use that song, and I felt like it was a great weapon. Yeah. No, I mean, that, but Siri, that scene, that whole scene, whenever you put a reel together, that needs to be in there because that is so symbolic and significant of you as a filmmaker taking your various disciplines and putting them together to tell a very powerful story in one scene. Um. And it just it just slays me every time because now I've seen it because I paid money and went to the theater and saw the film. Yeah, so I've seen the film several times now. I've seen. You know, you just you know you just made my day, right? Because you gave me a you gave me eleven seventy five. You just made my day. (laughs) No. Well, I'm so glad I could make your day. Yes, I gave you 11.75. I went and I paid full price in the theater to see the film again. Because now I saw it in the editing phase. I saw the final cut just before it came out. 
And then after it came out, I went and saw it again. And I, I films that I really gravitate towards, I really like to see in the theater because I like to hear and see the audience reaction. And I have to tell you, the, right. the audience reaction, there were moments they were holding their breath. There were some moments they applauded. Just like several press did at the press screening. So it's really interesting to see the impact that this film has on people, which explains why it's still in the top 10 box office this week. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, moving, it's a moving picture, and what's great about it also we're dealing with something that's an epidemic here domestically that mm-hmm. people have no idea that it's right in their neighborhood. It's right on their block. It's right around the corner from them. Yep. And um, that's what I'm most I'm, I'm most happy about is the fact that we're we're not you know necessarily educating you on trafficking, but at the same time we're telling you that it exists. Yeah. And it's here, and we should be mindful of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's. A wonderful, it's a wonderful kind of social commentary, uh, which unlike a document, it's not beating you over the head. It's unfolding in a very natural, normal setting, which makes it even more striking as you see it happening and you stop and think and you realize, yes, this is actually happening here in the United States, in the suburbs, outside Sacramento. You know, just look around, and there it is. It's not in somebody else's backyard. It's in ours. And that's one of the striking takeaways of Traffic. Beyond your growth as a filmmaker, beyond the great performances and the storytelling, it's the takeaway of what this film imparts on a moviegoer. And that is a testament to you as a storyteller, my friend. I mean, thank you so much for that. I mean, you know what? You always almost try to make me cry, huh? <laughs> you gonna make me cry today on Monday? No, I'm not gonna. I'm not trying you to know, make you, you cry. You know, you know, I get. I, you know, I tear up, and that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get some ratings on the show to have me crying on the show, huh? No, I you am. I am not trying to make you cry on the show. I swear, I promise, I am not trying to make you cry on the show. Well, you just you just made me cry. Well, you know, every time... all the people that hey, listen for everybody out there that don't know me, <laughs> I'm gonna just tell you, I, I'm I'm. This is an emotional world for me, based on the fact of where I came from. I came from Gary, Indiana. Came from nothing. Um, I've been homeless. I've been. I've slept in cars. Uh, I've 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 used basketball as a way of life. To get me to college, I'm from a single-family home. My mom has worked three jobs her whole life. And uh, it was only in Europe playing professional basketball that I had a great idea that I would, I would try my hand at film. And for 12 years of my life, I dedicated my life to doing this craft and trying my hardest to be a, di- a director and a writer. And when I tell you I've had the most awful experiences in Hollywood in terms of people telling me no, People laughing, people, you know, using me, people uh, abusing me in terms of who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. And when you stumble out of a world like that, and you begin to find great people like you, Debbie, and people like Dante, and people like Roxanne, and people that are now in your life that 
not only motivates you, but encourage you to be great and see what you've been trying to build. And then when God touches your hand and allows you to actually grow in this space, it's a beautiful thing. And it's something that, you know, when you speak words to me like that, I, I, I you know, I get emotional because, you know, it's a journey and, and, and it's life. And, and I'm just thankful and happy, like I said earlier, that people pay attention to what it is you make. And, you know, people, oh, he, he, the movie's in the theater. Like, dude, do you understand how incredible it is to have an independent movie in the theater? I don't care if it made $1 million. It's in there, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, you can actually, actually go buy a ticket and see it. Yeah. And to me, it's just a, be- it's just a beautiful thing, man. And, I, you know, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I just want to tell you, thank you so much. You've always been so encouraging and so nice to me and so supportive. And, you know, we're going to keep on doing what we're doing it. And we're going to build even more better films and, you know, tell better stories and, and just grow. So thank you for that. Well, you know, I am always there for you. I ain't going anywhere. You're stuck with me. <laughs> you, bet, you bet not go nowhere. <laughs> I won't. Well, unfortunately, we both have to go somewhere now because we are out of time. We are out of time today. I thought we were staying the night on the radio. Well, hey, you know, we could, except for they have another show in an hour, a guy who talks about tea and the benefits of tea. Um, so, n- unfortunately, tea, tea time, you know. But no, you will definitely come back on the show again. I know you will. We didn't have to ask you to come on the show. So <laughs> you, just, you just you just you just tell me uh, when, and I'm there. Okay. I know. But well, Debbie, seriously, let me just tell you thank you so much for for everything, for all your listeners that are out there listening to this woman. Please continue to listen to her show, root for her show. It's very rare that you meet someone that is really a fan of the art and a real critic. And, and, and not, not a bottled critic, not someone that's just, oh, let me just get in it because it's cool and I like to say. No, I mean, Debbie, you are an amazing person, man, and, and what you say matters. And you really take the time to understand cinematography, sound, writing, directors, writers. And that's a beautiful thing when someone can speak to you and you're educated on all of those things versus just an opinion, right? And uh, for that, I love you to death, and I want to say thank you again for having me. And now you made me cry, so we're even. Get out of here. (laughs) Get out of here. Thank you so much, okay? My love, I will talk to you soon. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye, Dion. And that was writer-director Dion Taylor Traffic in theaters right now. See it. Uh, And hopefully I'll be in the editing bay with Dion later this week to see whatever this film is he's working on with Dennis Quaid. But that's it for today. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 